Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I'm very excited to welcome Holly Whitaker to the podcast. Holly is the founder of the first female-focused recovery program, Tempest, as well as a best-selling author. Her book, Quit Like a Woman, dives into Holly's journey towards sobriety, as well as gives an honest portrayal of our drinking-obsessed culture and the role alcohol plays in the lives of women in particular. For this conversation, I'll be joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start at the beginning. Talk to me about what was it like growing up as a child? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, So I was born in Fresno, California. So I was born in the Central Valley of California. I was the youngest child. Um, My sister, Heather, is two and a half years older than me. Um, My mom uh, was born with a congenital hip dysplasia. And so my mom was born, she's now had like eight hip replacements. And so uh, kind of um, a miracle child in that sense that her, she didn't, she didn't have the capacity physically to be able to give birth and she did it twice. Um, And so I was, I was raised in a very normative middle-class environment. My dad was an entrepreneur um, you know, always had businesses. My mom had been a school teacher and she actually decided to stay home and raise us. And so it was a um, idyllic childhood, almost perfect um, setting. And my parents, my mom was my Sunday school teacher. Um, we went to a pretty liberal church. Um, we were close to my mom's family. I had cousins. I had neighbors I played with. Um, I just, I had like this really sweet and perfect childhood and my, my mom was with us all day long. Um, and then I, you know, I think like things that are really important to my story are that because I watched my dad as an entrepreneur, um, I just, I went to work with him when I was like, probably I started working for him when I was like seven or eight years old. I, I went along with him. He had this really weird business that was um, it would not be legal today, um, but it was this like this concept of a fundraiser for schools where kids would go around and sell pre-made frozen pizzas. This was like before frozen pizzas, really. And then all these elementary school kids would get together and they would actually make pizzas. So it's like so unhygienic. I can't even begin. Um, but that's what he did as a business. And I would partner with him and go around with him and like be the director of these like huge pizza makes at a really young age. Um, So I think like important to my story is that I had this great upbringing. I worked very closely with my father. I was very close with my father. And I was also from a young age, very interested in work. I'm very, very interested in, um, in I think just like a beanie worker. I tried to get my first, you know, I, I started a babysitting business. I used to work 45 hours during the summer um, when I was like 13 and 14, like full-time caretaking for these two young boys. So I, that was like a huge part of my childhood, which was that I always absolutely was um, believed in the power of, of making your own money. Um, and, and like, um, I was extremely independent. 
Um, and I think like the, the first real challenge of my, you know, of my childhood, aside from, I had early onset of eating disorders. So I started taking diet pills when, you know, I had huge body image issues in fifth, fifth and sixth grade. I had like the, you know, what I would say extremely normal, um, an extremely normal girlhood in terms of like how complicated it is to be a girl. Um, but for me, I had this very specific experience when I was um, 13, my parents got divorced and that is a huge part of my story um, because it was the unraveling, right? It was the total unraveling of like everything that um, I had taken for granted of what families are supposed to be. And it didn't seem like something that could happen in my family. Um, and then beyond that, um, about a year after that, um, my dad came out. Um, my dad had known from the time that he was, you know, his first memory of like really like conceptualizing his sexuality was when he was eight. And so my dad had been in the closet because that is, and, and that's a very, very like normal and specific trajectory of, you know, people of that generation where they had to hide it. And so that was the, like the second unraveling. And whereas before all of this, I had been this like really, I had been a straight A student. I had been working, I had been in AP classes. Um, I really towed the line of being a good girl. Um, my family dissolved. And not only did my family dissolve, but I questioned my sexuality through someone else's sexuality. I was really thrown into the situation where I was, um, you know, my dad for a year, my dad didn't tell me he was gay, but I was going, I was like going with him on dates and I was exposed to his community and, and not being told what was happening. And then I started to find literature on, on, on being gay and like my, under my mom's bed and in my sister's stuff. And so that was another big part of this because it also threw me into, I didn't have any boundaries in my family. Um, my mom went back to work. Um, my dad totally went away because he had this unlived life that he was going to make up for. And our relationship dissolved. My sister checked out. And at a, like at probably 13, 14, when we're having this extremely important developmental time, I all of a sudden had zero boundaries, zero rules, zero consequences, um, very, very confused relationship with my own sexuality. And um, also had 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 a, you know, like a, a dance with depression since I was a kid and anxiety. And so my, the last few years of high school were me really just um, having, I mean, having um, a, having a lot of sex, but like not vaginal sex, like, like just basically giving myself away to any man that I could, um, to prove I wasn't gay. And like, um, also just like in total, in total pain, not being able to name it and using substances, um, to manage that. And so I started using pot at 15 and I started using alcohol, um, you know, like I used pot more as a coping mechanism. Alcohol was just what I did on the weekends. Um, but that really blew up when I was 18, when I got full blown or 17, when I got full blown anorexia. And so my story just goes like this. And it was really always a story of like this extreme drive toward perfection and this extreme drive toward, um, um, you know, being the best that I could be. I absolutely always found what made sense to me and what made my life sane was my career. So in high school, I worked 30 hours a week. 
In college, I worked 40 hours a week. I always found my worth in those structures. And then I was duct taping all that together behind the scenes um, and in and out of eating disorders um, with like a varying level of, of, of alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder. Sometimes, you know, extremely moderate on the spectrum um, or not even on the spectrum, you know, sometimes just binge drinking or problematic drinking. And then other times, and especially into my thirties, um, just like on the other side of it. And so I had this reckoning probably when I was 30, um, 31, when I broke up with somebody I thought I was going to marry. Um, I got into a relationship with the CEO of a company that I was working out a seat, like a secret relationship. It was extremely, um, there was a huge power imbalance and it was, um, it was, it was in its, he was not abusive, but it was an abusive relationship. And I, um, just lost, I, I lost my, my shit. I just completely unraveled and stopped caring about living and just started really only surviving. And in that developed like extreme severe alcohol use disorder. Um, I had bulimia and it was off the charts and, um, and also I smoked pot and cigarettes. I smoked spliffs like all day, every day. And I was extremely successful at work and I was dying. And so I had, um, and keeping it together, if that makes any sense, just like living this life where like I was checking the boxes I had to check and then slowly behind the scenes, just completely morphing into a, a shell of myself. And so I had this experience when I was I guess 32 and I just I woke up one morning and I just was so sick and so dead inside and I couldn't go on doing what I was doing and I had this total like you know like bottom moment of just screaming in my apartment like I need help someone help me and then uh I just that opens like some wild doors of willing like it, it's just that willingness and that shift of finally being like uncle I can't do it anymore this is too much I need help I didn't go out and like go to rehab or anything I just like it opened the door of possibility and then it just almost my my life took a, a 180 from that point it was just it, very slowly but I just found a therapist and I started to do things to make myself come back to life. And I ended up um, engaging in recovery. I got sober from alcohol, like six months, you know, from that moment. Um, and then, you know, stopped um, binging and purging um, not long after, stopped using recreational drugs not long after that. Um, and then decided, you know, using that early ambition and that structure that had kept me sane for so long, left the job where I was working for somebody that I used to have sex with. Um, and then I ended up starting a company um, to help. I, I started it originally to speak to, I, I, I felt I was the only person in the entire world that suffered as much as I did in the specific way that I did. And like that just couldn't keep it up, couldn't make what we were supposed to be making work. Um, and then I started to understand I was not alone in that. And I really absolutely wanted to bring a different um, lens to recovery and a different lens to alcohol. 
and and start to essentially like unearth this thing that I think so many people struggle with, with like mental health issues, addiction issues, um, bring it into the light and create a totally um, like like it just like just adequate, not even like the best, just an adequate system of recovery. Um, and, and I really sought to do this to address all of the things that keep people sick, that keep people addicted, and then also um, keep people out of recovery. And so um, that's what I did. I founded a company called Tempest in 2014. Um, it is live and kicking today. There's 60 employees. Um, and also along the way, I wrote a book um, called Quit Like a Woman. And I just recently left my role as CEO of that company. I moved into just a uh, uh, board director, uh, chief creative officer, founder, um, to kind of start on another journey that is um, not so wrapped up in the achiever that I am. I'm, I'm curious, you know, a lot of people would have seen you from the outside. You said you were you know, highly successful in, in your job. Was there anybody who said, hey, I think you're recognized what was happening outside of the work environment and, and said, you know what, maybe you need to get some help? I think that the people that really saw the struggle were my mom and my sister. And I think that, no, though, I mean, the answer is no, they were just mad at me. And I think that's one of the things that really informed how Tempest approach approaches recovery was I needed, I was sick, but because my sickness, my mom had cancer at the same time that I was in recovery, but my sickness didn't qualify. My sickness was a choice in their eyes. It was a thing. It was a selfishness. And so because of that, they were just mad at me. They were just like, fix your shit. Um, and stop, you know, and, and it wasn't even really putting them out. Like, it wasn't like I was showing up to their houses drunk in the middle. You know, it was very like, it was just the, my rationality, my, like my, um, you know, I just, I was, a I, I people had to walk on eggshells around me because I was such a, an unhappy person, but it wasn't like they were suffering from my addiction, but it was more like, it was just, it wasn't like you need to get help. It wasn't compassion. It was just like, like get, get away, <laughs> fix whatever that is. Um, to know. Holly, reading Quit Like a Woman really hit home for me. I am, um, my mother went to rehab for alcohol um, when I was 12. And mm -hmm. the line when people were like, where is she? It was right after my bat mitzvah. And the line was, she worked so hard on the party and the whole event that my dad sent her to a spa to relax. Um, there was such a shame around taking control of your life and saying, I have a problem. I suffer from depression. I'm using alcohol and weed to cope and owning that. It was such a, something that she always felt like had to be hidden. So I just want to say thank you for talking so openly about it, because I do think that there's this as you've talked about in your book, in AA, there's this like secrecy. You're not allowed to talk about it. You know, if you try to see if someone's in it, it's like, oh, are you friends with Bill W? It's yeah. like this weird secrecy that brings about shame. That's right. Instead of like handling any other disease. 
So what would you say to our listeners who one might think that they might have a problem or maybe not a healthy relationship with alcohol or drugs? And two, how do you, how would you have them start that conversation either with talking to their loved ones, like they might have an issue or approaching a loved one? if they think there might be a problem. So I want to say one thing first. I think that the reason that there's such stigma and such shame around it is not because of AA. I think AA responded to the cues of society. We have always, you know, and this is like, this is eugenics. We have always swept under the rug, like anything that didn't conform to dominant culture. And we have always done that. And mental illness, addiction, these are things that like, if you look at the history of, um, asylums. Um, this was it's, this was wealthy people sending away undesirable members of their family. We have all. This is a. This is us. This is what humans do, right? And so, there is the re, the secrecy around addiction is because we is because of our puritanical roots, especially in this country, as because of our the the roots of of eugenic of eugenics. Um, the roots of like white supremacy, all of this essentially like fold into this idea that you are not, that you, you have to assimilate. And if you don't, you know, and it, it is especially seen, and that's why I think addiction is so interesting because it's so palpable in that space because we have decided people that drink too much or use drugs are choosing to do that to themselves and that they are the worst possible human. And especially you know, if you're a woman and you're doing that, like when AA was started, and I, I wrote about this in my book, women were not allowed to be alcoholics. It was just like unthinkable because then a woman was like the, the worst kind of woman. You know, she was, she was forsaking her duty to home, to, to child raising, to her community. Women are not supposed to choose themselves over, you know? And so I want to be really clear. AA didn't create that secrecy, but they it, it does, the tenets of it do uphold that secrecy. Um, what I would say to anybody that's thinking that they want to, that they have a, a thing, I want to say very clearly, if you think you have a thing, you have a thing. You do not have to qualify it. You do not have to go online and look at, at, at the scales or take the test. We are so smart. And part of our sickness is ignoring the signals that we have. And so if you think you have something going on with alcohol, I'm going to be very clear. You have something going on with alcohol. If you think, you know, you're in a bad relation, yes, you're probably in a bad relationship, right? Like it's just, we have to start listening to ourselves. And then to anybody that's a family or a friend, a loved one of somebody that's struggling with addiction, I am not, this is not where I have done the bulk of my research. There are really great uh, organizations that actually help prepare or support families and loved ones, Foundations for Motivation and Change um, is a great one to look at. Um, there's a book that's called Beyond Addiction. That's a book specifically for families. Um, you can look into motivational interviewing, which is a core tenet of how to speak to someone that has an addiction. Um, and then I think harm reduction is also like, like harm reduction is one of those compassionate um, uh, philosophies. Uh, and I think like check out harm reduction. Like if you're going to address somebody that has an addiction, right? You need to do this out of the, I am not, I need you to be different for me to love you. It has to be from that place of 
um, like true and, and pure compassion for the individual, not empathy, not like just compassion, just for the love of another human. And there are really great organizations. Um, we the Village is another one. Hallie, talk to me about being a child. You witnessed your family going through this huge change, both with the divorce of your parents, as well as your dad coming out. And you mentioned that the boundaries that used to be in place for you started to really come down. Do you think that lack of boundaries or such a large shift in someone's home life is the first breadcrumb um, towards addiction or towards looking to escape with drinking or smoking? I think it's really interesting because if you look at all the different theories of addiction, there's all of these really, um, everyone's always trying to boil something down to this one moment, this is what happened. So everyone has the potential for addiction and we're all addicted, like all of us are. If you look at the way that we use technology, smartphones, consumerism, like we're an addicted society. We don't know how to be with ourselves. And so like the wiring that addiction runs through, all of us have the potential to become um, severely addicted. So that lives and whether or not that turns on is, a, is, is due to a number of things. So, you know, early childhood trauma, early childhood detachment, um, the culture that you were raised in, your, your, your models, your, um, your peer group, absolutely boundaries is part of that. Discipline, um, do you know how to self-soothe? Do you have healthy coping mechanisms? Uh, what age you start using absolutely plays into it because your brain is still forming. Um, you have less of a chance getting addictive to start drinking after age 21 than if you do before it. Um, the like genetic makeup and genetic predisposition. And there's not like an alcoholic gene or an addict gene, but there definitely are um, different uh, genetic makeups that are more prone to addiction. Um, and I could go on and on and on, but like there is a really great, um, there's a, uh, the, the psychobiosocial model of addiction. It's not the full thing, but the, the biopsychosocial model of addiction is a simple way to understand it. There's the underlying vulnerabilities. And then there's, what do you do to cope with it? So if I have that same, let's just say two people have had the same exact experience of their lives somehow, same DNA, same genetic makeup, same experience. One could turn to, you know, uh, writing or turn to uh, a, a different outlet. Like they, the way they process their pain um, is through this one healthy thing. And they, you know, or this, you turn to, um, you know, opiates, you know, like it's like, it's just, there are, we externally manage ourselves. It's, it's kind of, what's happening underneath, what the vulnerabilities are that expose us and then what we actually use and then how that use develops over time. But, but there's there's so many factors that lead to addiction, so many things that you can't really boil it down. But that was part of it. That was a part of my, my stuff, but that was only like one one thousandth of the whole picture, you know? So when you decided that you were first going to try to stop drinking, um, you talk a lot in your book about how your social circle completely changed. Yeah. Um, you know, living in San Francisco right outside of Napa, I lived there for a little bit and it is a drinking culture yeah, without a doubt. Um, and you talk about how with your friends, you weren't drinking, but at one event, someone put a bottle of wine up to your nose and said, smell it. Yeah. And 
can you talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. and what that not only I can't even imagine that experience, but having to not only change you and you're going through this whole like breakthrough and changing every part of your life, but then those you depended on are starting to shift and not support you in your change. Yeah. I think to understand that you have to understand how human behavior, we don't really think about other people, even in our best, you know, we think about ourselves, everything we do and see is through our own perception. And so my quitting drinking was like this ripple through the community that all needed each other to have terrible relationships with alcohol in order to not have to look at the things we don't want to look at. This particular person was somebody I had, it was my friend's, um, I write, I don't even know what I write in the book that the relationship is, but it was one of my best friends at the time. It was her mother-in-law. And I had, um, I had had a lot of wine with this woman. She, um, she constantly like we, she was the fun mom, you know? And like, I was at this barbecue or whatever it was. And everybody was just like, it was so wine focused. It was a little shocking and uncomfortable. And I, I had, I known that I absolutely would not have gone. But I like all I remember of that day was like the shades were drawn and like it was like kind of dark in this like big beautiful house but kind of dark and like I think everybody probably drank about two bottles of wine but like each and so I just was standing in the house and I hadn't talked to her and now at this point I want to say I was probably like a year and a half it was probably a year and a half sober maybe two years. I can't remember exactly. It was, it was probably the summer of 2014. So maybe even just about a year, but whatever it was, it wasn't a secret. I had been around this family sober for a while and it was just like, she saw me and I, I try and write about it to capture it because it was just like a tractor beam of her, like kind of like walking up to me, like, Hmm, like to test an experiment out against me. And I, it's really interesting because when you, I was really solid in my decision not to drink. I don't want to drink again. But when you're, when you're, when you're explicitly not drinking and you're in recovery and you're in a situation, I was always trying to manage against people worrying about me or people thinking like, I was very aware of like, if I was, if I was, um, to ha- like what, what my affect was around wine, like, do I look at it? Do I say, Oh, cool. You know, like, and so I was already really weird about like how to interact with alcohol in a way to, to make sure everyone else was okay. And then she just came up to me and like wanted to show me it. And I think that she had gotten a case of it or she had invested in the winery. There was some story around it, but she put it up to my nose and asked me to smell it and asked me if I could still smell it. And then still hung around with me and was like, look, like, isn't it a beautiful? And I just was so worried about her and not embarrassing her right? That I just went along with it. And it was one of those things where I I felt like I was on drugs because I was in this situation where everybody knew I was at this, in this metamorphosis and, and what I, you know, and and that person, you know, the woman whose house it was, whose mother, whose mother-in-law had done that knew very clearly how much I was, I had struggled. And then it was just like, do you want to come over to this drinking party and like have us all pretend like you're just, you know, like the same person you were a year ago and haven't been through this thing. And so it was just a a poignant moment that was not unlike other moments. It was just so radical. (laughs) It was just like, you know, hard to miss. You know, so much of, of business networking and really social interaction when you get 
older, when you're over the age of 21, is around drinking. Can you talk a little bit about how your how you think society could maybe improve on our interactions with each other where we didn't feel like we needed to have a drink in hand uh, to get to know each other and uh, have a good time. Yeah. So I have total, I have social anxiety. I, I'm, I get very, I'm very um, nervous around people actually. Um, and I, my networking events, I like, I, and as the CEO of an organization that raised venture capital, I've had to go to so many networking events um, where people are drinking or even, you know, like some, like some that are invested in um, cannabis where people are smoking, you know? And like, it's just, I think um, what I have resolved to, because I hate networking events, I hate being a stranger in a room full of people um, I, I just feel like I lock up and don't, I make things weird. Um, I've actually had to work really hard on allowing myself to be weird. And it, like, we, like, it's a, if you think about it, you're working in a, an organization, you don't spend time with these people, really. These are not your friends, you know, you see them, you know, throughout the week, but you're not like, these are not your chosen circle. And then you have a happy hour, you know, like just taking an example of the work happy hour you have a happy hour and you all go out. These are people you probably would never choose to hang out with or like be friends with. And then how the hell do you manage that? Well, you drink your way through it to create a fake connection. Instead of just either choosing, maybe we don't need to do work happy hours. Maybe we actually go hang out with people we actually wanna be friends with. Maybe we all sit around in our awkwardness and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and to say stupid things or to not connect or to, work at that connection but we're just so we do not know how to suffer we do not know how to be in any sort of discomfort so we go to the thing that actually overrides the point of the thing and so I think for me I have had to because I don't have that tool anymore in my toolbox when I go to a social function I have no choice but to be my awkward self to have awkward conversations to like stand there like a weirdo and not by the drink to, you know, like to just, I have to go through all that. And thank God I do, because it makes me more human. And it makes me also more in tune with, oh yeah, I don't want to do this. I'm going to leave early. I'm getting the hell out of here. Instead of becoming friends with, you know, Bob, who I'll never see again um, over a couple of brews, you know, it's just totally different experience. Holly, when you look at today's drug laws, both at a state level and a federal level, do you feel that they are in line with people who are struggling with addiction? Could they be updated to be more helpful to people who are recovering from addiction? You know, I think, um, I don't have a good answer to that question. That's, that is a great question. Um, and I don't have a good answer to it. I don't, I don't know. Um, I haven't even really ever thought about that. I think when you think about um, what, when you, I think there's a couple of things a couple of thoughts I have on this one is we've criminalized addiction so much. And so, you know, there's really three choices. There's like free support groups, there's uh, inaccessible rehab and there's jail. And that's where a lot of people end up, right? Uh, especially black and brown people. So we have a system that is set up to basically take the sickest and most vulnerable people of our population to throw them into the, into jail. Um, there's also when you like expand the spectrum to like, um, when you expand it to like mental health crises or suicide, 
you know, what happens if you tell like your therapist that you're, you know, I, that you have suicidal thoughts and that you have a, a plan to carry it out? Well, they're going to send the police to your house to deal with that. And so I think that it's less of more laws. We don't need more laws. We don't need more police. We need actual like systems of compassionate care. We need harm reduction. We need more research. We need more resources. And we need to take that shit from the alcohol industry. And that's like the biggest piece of it too, is that in tacked on to one of the, I can't remember which one, but tacked onto one of the relief packages in COVID was a tax break for the alcohol industry because they claimed that they had been harmed by the pandemic. No industry has done better in the pandemic, but we gave them a tax break instead of funneling their money into programs that can help people that are struggling. And so we don't need more laws. We don't need more police. We don't need any more of what we've already thrown at the problem. The war on drugs is a massive failure and it, that has ended up creating more ways we end up in jail for coping with a society that's impossible. We need more compassionate uh, um, approaches and we need more money to treat it. So that. When you decided to really stop drinking, stop drugging, um, you started new rituals. Uh, yeah. You started doing a lot of yoga. You started really um, exploring like meditation. Can you talk about some of that? Um, and on a side note, I when I was living in San Francisco, I used to take yoga every Sunday with Stephanie. <gasps> oh my God. I there's, just did it with her this morning. Sorry. Your <laughs> chance. Because when you were in San Francisco, I was living there that like maybe oh. I would take all of her classes. Wait, so. at Love Story or did you take it at Rusty's old place? The old place. <gasps> Why can't I think of the name of that anymore? But, but like you climb up Urban the Flow. Yeah. Yes. <gasps> Oh my God. Okay. Sorry. Stephanie is my like teacher. Like she's she's phenomenal. And I was like, when I moved there needed to find a community and someone had told me her yoga class was amazing. And so I would like leave work or on a Sunday and that was Sunday evening. Yeah. Yeah. It was a beautiful, definitely did yoga together. Yeah. Um, So small world, but that is, Um, Yeah. So I think that when you think of ritual, like this is not routine, this is not habit, which are also really important to understand and explore. The cat just walked in. Um, It's about ritual. Ritual is essentially something that is the, if you look at the root of addiction, if you look at like what actually, like, if you look at like, there's all the vulnerabilities that we talked about, but when you look at the higher level, what is like the meta cause of addiction? Um, It's, uh, it's capitalism. It's, uh, it's the society that basically strips you from your culture and essentially, you know, assimilates you into like a productive machine. And so you lose that sense of connection. We don't honor anything. We honor a 40 day work week or a 40 hour work week. We honor um, productivity. Um, and so one of the things that, um, and, and really good case studies on this are also just what happened to like indigenous populations, right? Which is when you strip away the culture, you strip away the meaning and then you force assimilate, you end up with like highly addicted populations. We need meaning and we need to be able to ritualize our lives and to honor changes. 
and to honor process. And so that means widely we need to create ritual in our life to honor a transition. Um, like I am going to do a ritual for leaving my role and moving into a new role. But also we don't ritualize our day. We don't ritualize moving from waking up into our work day. We don't ritualize moving from our work day into our evening or from our evening into our beds. And so when we're talking about ritual, we're actually talking about going back to this sense of honoring change and doing things that help us facilitate and acknowledge instead of just forcing through. So ritual to me is like, it's not, oh, every morning I do, you know, I, I, I take these vitamins, I do this for five minutes, I do this for 10 minutes. It's far more about what am I doing to honor when, as I'm, as I am coming home from work, because wine is a ritual coming home from work. If you're into making dinner and drinking wine or like doing like, that is a ritual that you have created. And so we need to, if we're removing some of these, add in rituals. And that could include meditation or yoga, but a ritual could also just be when I walk home, when I walk in my door, I light a candle um, and I, you know, and I sit with myself for five minutes and just breathe. Or it could be anything that we find that is a way for us to slow down, turn in, and um, instead of just, you know, having to really like numb ourselves, you know, down to, to, to just make it through. Um, is that helpful? Yeah. What are some of your uh, rituals that you do? Um, so I, in the morning wake up, um, and I typically, I used to drink hot lemon water in the morning. Sometimes I go around and do that, but in the morning I journal, um, I have, I wake up at five, I have my coffee, I journal, I read something beautiful. I'm reading, um, Anthony DeMello right now, awareness. Um, and then most mornings I'll do like meditation or I'll do yoga class, but it's just a matter of like having time with myself. I don't like discipline in that sense of every morning I do this one thing, um, but I do appreciate getting up at the same time every day. I do appreciate spending some time with my thoughts, spending some time journaling. Um, and then in the evening recently, it's just been uh, cooking dinner with my partner and um, you know, getting to bed at 10 and reading uh, in bed uh, in the evening. And so it's, it's not like um, very fancy. It's just almost doing things that I'm making sure I'm nurturing myself. Holly, you often hear the term waiting for someone to hit rock bottom in association with addiction. A lot of people feel like, you know, if they have a loved one going through addiction, they're just waiting for them to hit that point and then they'll want help. Can you explain how actually waiting for someone to hit rock bottom is not the best approach? Well, I really appreciate Byron Katie's work. Um, and so I think um, everyone should listen to Loving What Is. It's um, their dialogues of her. She has a process called, you know, like the work. Um, and then she leads people through essentially like understanding, I mean, it, loving what is just means I, I love everything as it is. I don't need anything to change for me to be okay. And I think a lot of times when we are dealing with somebody that has, um, addictive, uh, addictive issues or addiction, um, we also have to look at, I, I think like the first thing I'll say to anybody is like, what are you doing on yourself? Right? Like, so I think the first part is how are you taking care of yourself? Because a lot of times you can find people's, you know, addictions become our addictions. The per like, I want to fix that person. I'm codependent on that person. Change. I need that person to be different so that I can be okay. 
So I think the most, like the most important thing that like anybody, like we only have ourselves that we can actually change. And I'm, I'll get to the second part of that because I, I love what you say. But I think like the first part is we absolutely have to be right with ourselves and we have to do our own work and be engaging in our own work before we can believe that we know what's better for somebody. And I also really believe in this idea of, um, I, I strongly believe in everyone's choices and life paths, meaning I honor the person who continues to use. I honor the person. I don't need somebody to clean, get clean, to get sober in order for me to still love them. And for me to, um, I, 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 I don't know how else to say that. I mean, that really is like steeped in the principles of harm reduction where you're not trying to get some, you're just trying to create a safe environment or you're just trying to help somebody safely use. Um, so I think in that um, it's just, if you're going into it and you need a specific outcome, you need this person to change for you to be okay. That's where we run into issues. At this, and, and that's where we our compassion ends because all of a sudden it's tied up in somebody actually doing something. At the same time, I do think that having dialogue and, and, and showing that like support and having really strong boundaries of what behavior you're not gonna put up with, what you're not gonna deal with, protecting ourselves um, you know, is also extremely important. So I don't think there's just a simple answer to that. I think if you are, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one that is struggling with addiction, um, you know, like, and, and that's, there's, there's as much work on, on your side as there is on this person's side. It just is more obvious what their work is. So you mentioned that you're going into a, a new company and that you're going to, um, start a, a whole new, uh, endeavor. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, what that is? So I actually am staying at Tempest. I just, um, a lot of CEO founders, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is a good example. Jeff Bezos is a good example. They're not good examples. They're just a good example of people that have managed to make to make the leap from being a founder visionary into a um, effective growth-minded CEO. Um, and um, but a lot of a lot of folks that found companies don't end up staying as the CEOs of the company. Um, there's like, like only about twenty-five percent do. Um, and I can't remember what year mark is. And so I changed roles. Uh, we hired a, an, a, a, like a, a growth minded CEO to come in and really lead the strategy and to take the vision to like drive the vision home to hit it out of the park. My role is now just chief creative officer, not just it's chief creative officer, which means I'm responsible for our programming, um, for our content. Um, for essentially making sure that like the core of what we do um, is the original, like in line with the original vision that we had. Um, so it's, it's just changing uh, my roles within the organization. Talk to us a little bit about Tempest. Um, why did you start it? What is its mission? Um, and how can people find it? So people can find it by going to jointempest.com. Um, Tempest is, and I'll repeat that again at the end. Um, so I started Tempest because I worked in healthcare when I was struggling with um, severe uh, eating disorder and severe alcohol use disorder. Um, I talked to my provider about it and my provider had to Google how to help me. Um, we believe in this idea of like the you know medical profession as those that will answer and heal us, but that's not what healthcare is. Um, healthcare in this country especially is um, 
reactive care. It's not preventative care. And so, and, and also it has extreme limits in how it conceptualizes, um, you know. So for me, I had this experience where I went down the, the channel I thought I should, but then I found I didn't want to do the free option and I couldn't do the, the paid option. So Tempest really was, uh, it was founded under this um, ideal that recovery needs to be holistic. Um, but also that especially in addiction recovery, it needs to be centered on the patient. And you can't do that in healthcare. Healthcare is a system that is set up on behalf, like it's a, it's a system that is set up on behalf of the system. Nothing in healthcare is driven by the consumer using it. Um, and what Tempest is, is a model that is built outside of the healthcare model that ladders back up to um, support services and clinical support services. But at its root, Tempest is an organization that helps people pull together a full comprehensive path to sustainable recovery um, that accounts for everything they may experience. And so meaning Tempest isn't just a 12-step program, which is which we also, there's many people that use Tempest that use 12-step programs, but it's not just a working a spiritual path and community like AA is, or it's not just like smart recovery where it's community and CBT. We really believe that every corner of your life needs to be lifted up in order for you to have sustainable recovery. And so we're essentially a full spectrum of services that allows people to create really holistic, effective um, recovery, long-term recovery. Um, and we do that by three simple things. We provide education, we provide support services, and then we also help people connect with one another to form the community that they need. Um, and it is, I think I explained, I think that I answered all of your questions, but again, it's, it's you go to jointempest.com and we have intensive programs that help like 30 day programs. And then we also have um, long-term membership and then um, just uh, accountability coaching um, and, and, and other things to help people construct a path to recovery from alcohol. We're specifically focused on alcohol. Where do you see it going from here? Where do you want to go? You've had a wild ride. <laughs> um, you've experienced a lot more than most people do. Um, and I would say that you really have taken those moments of like brokenness and really broke through and created something to help others. Where do you want to go next? Um, I'm working on my second book. Um, I, I want, I think um, what I have, I mean, it's so interesting because what I wanted seven years ago is, is not what I want today. Um, and I think for me, I will always stay in the addiction space. It's where my heart is. These are my people. Um, and I, um, it's just, it's such a, it's, it's such a, a corner, it's a corner of the world that impacts almost everybody, you know, and that, um, that you can do magnificent good in. Um, and so I'm going to stay in the addiction space. I'll probably, um, I really want to get like, go back to school. Um, I really want to continue to study addiction, study recovery systems, public health, um, and I want to write books. And I also just, I am tired. <laughs> I'm really tired. I'm 42. I want to, I, I live upstate, uh, on, on land and I, um, I would like to garden and, um, you know, just 
do a lot of meditation and stuff. I don't know. It's just I want a little rest. So that's where I see myself going to. <laughs> well, we appreciate all that you are doing and all, the, all of your efforts. And we appreciate you sharing your story with us. It's, it's been incredible. Uh, so thank you. thank you very much for joining us. We, we always end with the same three questions. Uh, I'll start with the first one. If you had to pick a quote or a mantra that you feel defines you or that you live your life by, what would uh-huh. that be? The place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you, Hafiz. I'm sorry, say that, say that again. The place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you, Hafiz. The second question we ask every guest is, if you could relive any one day, what day would that be? Oh, God, I think um, probably my first day in Rome. I love Rome. I go there a lot. Probably the first. I I wish I could go back to Rome for the first time all over again. The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. I was just saying the other night um, that one of the best songs is... um, endless love but I don't think that's it. I don't know that's such a hard question I because I love music um well okay let's say lovely day lovely day lovely day okay Bill Withers I'm sorry I literally turned red and started sweating I was like I can't answer that <laughs> great I'm gonna go ahead and add that song to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify So listeners can go ahead and check it out and hear your theme song featured on that playlist. Holly, thank you again so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, For all of our listeners who are interested in learning more about Tempest, they can go to jointempest.com. Also, I would highly recommend getting the book, Quit Like a Woman. It was a phenomenal read and very insightful. And for our listeners, please make sure you follow us on Instagram at For Your Listening Pleasure because we are going to be giving away some free copies of Quit Like a Woman. Um, Again, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. You all are so lovely. This is so fun. Thank you so much.